and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 161. And what a week. I was supposed to go on a trip, but there's a new COVID variant out there. So here in the UK, travel restrictions are tightening a little bit. And of course, in the COVID world, a week can be a very long time. So I figured it's not really worth taking the risk and having those rules tighten even further while you're in a foreign country. So I'm staying put here in Scotland, at least until the new year. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I think one of the hardest things at the moment is solving issues, because communication isn't what it used to be. It's now really difficult to get a hold of companies to change or cancel things, and even online chat is harder to access, and sometimes even harder to negotiate. I never really have a great success with online chat to start with, and so I'm still waiting on some refunds, and the company I booked my COVID test through isn't even bothering to reply to emails or calls, so who knows what's going to happen there. On the COVID front, I did manage to get my COVID booster just before the new variant hit the headlines, so that's positive at least, although it was a different kind to the first two that I had. Other than the fact that my arm now has had three COVID shots and one flu shot in the last little while, so it's a bit like a pincushion. In Scotland, they call injections jags. I have no idea why. I'm not keen on needles, but I wouldn't mind a jag, because to me, a jag means a car. But as I didn't win the lottery this week, that will have to wait too. I also put off several interviews because I was going to be away, but now that isn't happening, I have a few days without interviews, which feels a bit odd. Feels like the holidays have already started, and I'm not sure what day it is. I do know it's now December, as this morning was day one of the advent calendar. They used to be cheap, but now that Lego is the most important thing on the planet, we had to get a Lego Star Wars advent calendar, and they definitely aren't cheap. Last year they sold out, and I wasn't going to pay double online, so this year I had plenty of reminders from about June onwards that I had to buy one as soon as they came out, which I think was in August. That was easy enough to remember, but a current trend is bands and artists pre-releasing autographed CDs. And as I have a bit of a collection from the days when I did a lot of music interviews, I sometimes buy one. And then I forget that I bought them and buy another from a different company. So that's happened twice now where I get the same thing from two different sources. Oh well, they're good for Christmas gifts. I've decided that because the last part of December and early January is typically a very tough time for news, that I'm not going to put out a podcast on December the 22nd. I toyed with doing a best of, featuring some of my best podcast introduction stories. But then who's going to listen to a podcast that's just nine seconds long? So, December the 15th is the last one for this year, and I'll try and get a few interviews in hand for January. Still kind of amazes me that 2021 is almost over. I should run through who is on the podcast this week before we get to the news. We have interviews with two companies participating in FIE. We have conversations with Rudy Wouters, head of the Benio Technology Center, and Miriam Snate, head of market intelligence and consumer insights at Benio, and Mattia Hendricks, market development manager at GNT Group. We also chatted with FAIR policy director Dr. Helena Wright, who gave us an overview of COP26. So let's have a quick run-through of some of the articles we had this week. And we're starting off with a bit of a tongue twister because the IDF launched its 15th annual Animal Health Report. Kerry published a new protein mindset report and an ingredient company consortium is looking to put allulose on the map in Europe. Stora Enso has developed a product to minimize plastic in paper cups. We had our monthly roundup of some of the new products launched, and I appreciate that there are many more, and I also appreciate people sending them in. So if you do have a new product coming out, please do send it to us for inclusion in that roundup. The Government of Canada has kicked in some cash to a dairy supply chain company, 
Friesland Campina Ingredients and AGT Foods have partnered on plant-based protein solutions with a new range of products. Arla Foods Ingredients has developed a new milk fractionation process and Almarai is the first company to use the new SIG Plant 360 Asset Health Monitoring System. You can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. And so let's get to this week's guests. As we speak, or more accurately as I'm recording this, FIE and HIE are taking place in Frankfurt in Germany. It's a mix of in-person as well as online this year, and there are expected to be more than 17,000 visitors and more than 800 exhibitors. Two of them we're featuring on the show this week because they have made announcements, and the first of those is Beneo, which has revealed new research that consumers are now even more focused on positive aging. The research includes an exclusive analysis of the health-conscious 50-plus age range. To find out more, we chatted with Rudy Wouters, head of the Beneo Technology Center, and Miriam Snate, head of market intelligence and consumer insights at Beneo. So I guess FIE is coming up. It must be good to be back at shows again. Yeah, right. I, I think, yeah, it feels good to be back eh, at FIE that this time it's a physical physical meeting and not a virtual meeting like it was last year. So, and I think for us, FIE is, is, is important to get to our customers and to go in contact with our customers and to show the innovations that we do in functional food ingredients. And I always say it's always much easier when you can do this face-to-face. And I think the virtual conference, it had its charm. But nevertheless, you have a much better exchange of ideas and discussing projects when you have a face-to-face uh, conversation. And I think also what always have been has been very important is yeah, we bring always food samples. And if you talk about a story, if you talk about an ingredient, if you talk about a certain application, from the moment that you have some food samples, you can taste and you can feel how a product is functioning. Yeah, it's it's always so helpful, and that was really that was really missing in uh, in, in last year. So now it's it's good to good to be back. That's that's for sure. FIE is just around the corner. What will you be showcasing there? The main topic is healthy aging, and Miriam will come back in uh, with more details. But what we are uh, showcasing, where well, for instance we have a low GI biscuit where we include palatinos. The benefit of this product is uh, low GI, so it has an important deep impact on uh, lowering the blood glucose level. And we know that we are highlighting this year healthy aging, that's for sure. It's an important trend. And we want to show how our ingredients can help our customers, producers, new products to make, attracting products related to blood glucose, to bone health and to digestive health. Because it's also known that blood glucose levels it's very key to have a long-term health. And that's why choosing the right carbohydrates is very important. And the palatinose is a slow-release sugar. And you can see it, it occurs, it's a natural occurring uh, sugar. It occurs in honey, but it's very unique in its ability to deliver low rise in blood glucose, but still providing the, the full energy. And of course, another important aspect related to healthy aging is digestive health. Digestive health is well known. The consumers know where what it's about. And then Benio, we provide there the prebiotics. It's also clear the prebiotics, which are the soluble fibers. And they play an important role in promoting the growth of the good bacteria in a very selective way. And that helps at the end to support also the persons in the defense system. So many, many things that we want to show, but indeed uh, the focus is on healthy aging. And you've just done a study on healthy aging. I wonder if you could give me some details about that. Yes, of course. I'm happy to do that because, um, yeah, we conducted, uh, Beneo has conducted in collaboration with Health Focus International, which is a US-based agency that is specialized in consumer insights in the realm of health and nutrition. Um, we conducted their strategic analysis of the core segment of the 50 plus consumer. And um, some of the things what came out very clearly is that their major concern is really related to maintaining their activities and lifestyle when aging. 
So getting really the best out of the present and the future is yeah, what drives the, the health conscious 50 plus. And that's what we call, in fact, a positive aging. Yeah, this presents really some great opportunities, I think, for the food industry. On the one hand, it turns out that nutrition is uh, considered as playing a, a significant part in achieving this healthy diet. One of the elements that came out is that offering a better nutrition is one of the top influencing factors for those consumers when they try a new brand. But also making food products more functional, think about the improved digestive well-being or managing blood sugar levels, which really just uh, discussed. And as far as the study is concerned, how did you determine who to target with the study? Yeah, the study was then based on, in fact, uh, Health Focus International Global Trend Study, which they conduct every two years uh, in more than 20 countries in the world. Based on this data, we identified a core target group for products for healthy aging, and we used, in fact, three criteria. First of all, the consumers were in the segment of over 50 years, because we think that 50 is a kind of transitional age when consumers increasingly start to feel the aging process and, and also consider more the impact of their lifestyle on health. Next, we also checked that they had no children below 18 years living at home, because having children at home has always an important influence on food and beverage choices. And then also they were engaged in health and nutrition. So they chose, for example, on a regular basis, foods to age healthfully, or they were concerned about this continuing their normal activities when they age. And this segment covers still the large majority of these consumers. So 67% of all 50 plus without kids at home were included. So I think it's a, a really good target group for healthy aging products. What kind of products is the older age group looking for? So what we see is that they are really proactive in managing their health and they want to live their life to the fullest. So that is what we call the positive aging and their prevention is really key. And like I said already, a balanced diet, improving nutrition, improved nutrition is one of the elements they certainly look for. But it's also important for them that it doesn't happen at the expense of taste because these healthy agents, they don't like to compromise on taste. So balancing indulgence and health is key and it also offers uh, new opportunities. And there you could think, for example, about people having to follow a diet for blood sugar management because they often have to eliminate a lot of delicious foods from their diet. Therefore, there's certainly opportunities to still provide them products they love. Think about nostalgic products and there we have one of the products that we showcase is a vanilla pudding which is a product they still know very well also easy to integrate in their daily life and this vanilla pudding has a kind of healthy twist because we replace the part of the sugar by palatinose this low glycemic carbohydrate and this is one of the things that people look for because another fact maybe to know is that 65% of the 50 plus in this healthy aging segment, they wish they had healthier options in indulgence, food and beverages. Benio offers various solutions to support people, especially with blood sugar management, without having to compromise on taste. And we discussed already about palatinos. We also have isomal, the polyol. Also, our chicory root fibers can help there. And in general, also good to know is that healthy aging is really relevant for every age. Consumers of every generation are adopting this long-term approach to health. They consider the quality of life that this can give them. And that's certainly a fact that food and drink manufacturers can use to their advantage when they look into product development. It seems like it has taken on more meaning since the pandemic. Do you think that that is something that was happening anyway, or has that the pandemic created more of a need for this kind of product? I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated this trend because, yeah, it has forced people to think more about their health. Uh, all people, but especially also the, the elderly, and people are taking charge of their health and they're making now 
serious changes and we also expect many of these to be long lasting eh, because consumers are now adopting lifestyle changes and the pandemic is going on now already for some time so therefore we also think that this will last beyond the pandemic and it also yeah has highlighted some specific topics uh, like immune health which is very closely linked to digestive health the gut microbiome but there are also think also about mental well-being weight management these are all topics that came into the spotlight and that people also take into account when choosing foods and drinks penio is really committed to offer solutions to our customers that are based on uh, solid science and especially the human gut microbiome as blood sugar management are really key interest areas of our scientific work. You mentioned some of the products that you have earlier with respect to this particular area. What other products do you have that are of relevance in this particular study, in this particular area? What's important is that that Benio uh, really delivers certain solutions to this aspect so everything is about for at the end for the the customer to select the right ingredients that's important the right ingredients that has also to do with its technical properties and what is at the end the message that the customer want to have on its product on the packaging label so as miriam already explained when we look at the effect on blood glucose yeah we have isomotolos uh, palatinos we have the chicory root fiber, insulin oligofructose, but we also have isomalt. And these ingredients, they have or a low or a non-glycemic profile. So with these ingredients, we really can start to formulate. And we look, for instance, to palatinose as a, it's really a slow release sugar. So when I look to the products where it can be applied, the food products can easily apply it in a dairy product, can also easily apply it in dairy alternatives, which are all booming these days but also baked goods, breakfast cereal, beverages, you name it. There's always a possibility, for instance, to take out sugar out of the formulation, regular sugar, and replace 30% with palatinose. And palatinose has nice characteristics like solubility, like taste, where you can really make a good tasting product with a good texture. I also believe that it's quite important at the end for the customer that the customer does not have to change is her process totally and that these ingredients can easily be used. So also when you look to the, the chicory fibers like inulin oligofructose, also there they contribute to a low glycemic diet because very often these ingredients are used to replace available carbohydrates in existing formulations. So taking out carbohydrate sugars, putting in the fiber, that's also a way to address blood glucose. So at the same time, then you adding fiber and you take out the sugar, which is an, an, an extra benefit. And the third ingredient is isomalt. Isomalt uh, is a polyol, also supports a low glycemic diet. And especially we're aiming with the isomalt to confectionery and we add, add baked goods, these type of things. And also with this ingredient, very important is that it's easy to process, easy to apply in existing formulations. And that's always key at the end for the customer. And as far as your own customers, how do you work with them to create products that are suitable for this field? Because it must be difficult or sometimes confusing for them knowing exactly what to create or how to create it. Yeah, absolutely. And what is key here is that you go in discussion with the customer, that you have really a discussion on what is it about, what is the customer, what wants the customer to achieve on nutritional composition, on technical aspects, but also how to put it into the market. So in Benio, we have the support departments which can help the customer to move forward. But everything starts from a good discussion that you know what the customer at the end wants. And then it's just about selecting the right in Benio ingredient to arrive there. Obviously, when it comes to younger people, they're very active on social media, but not necessarily the case when it comes to the older generation. How do you and your own customers promote the benefits of these products to an older generation that might not be as much online as younger people? 
Yeah, here I think that we should not underestimate this generation because they are also actively enjoying learning about using new technology. So in a video research that we conducted on the topic, there was, for example, a lady who told us that she uses an app like Fitness Pal to track the nutritional value of her diet. Or also this generation is uh, starts to buy uh, goods, services online. So that's certainly also a point to take into account. But in general, we should also consider that healthy aging is not only of interest to older people. We've seen a real shift in the past 10 years that healthy aging, the quality of life, that that is what really came top of mind to consumers. And they're adopting this long-term approach to health maintenance. I also think that inclusive marketing campaigns, for example, eh, meaning that you have campaigns that embrace diversity and you include people with different cultural backgrounds, maybe a little bit overweight people, but also you can apply this for healthy aging and include also the 55 plus consumer in your marketing campaign, because in the end, everybody can benefit from healthy aging products and products that support digestive health, blood sugar management. The actual study, um, why are you announcing the results of that at the event? That's because Beneo has chosen healthy aging as the topic for the show. And uh, yeah, these results show insights that Beneo has on the topic. And uh, yeah, healthy aging as a topic, that was also because the United Nations just announced the decade of healthy aging as by 2050. 2 billion people will be aged 60 or older. I think, therefore, it's really a very important topic at this time. And also, yeah, healthy aging, healthy eating, they're strongly correlated. Also, the potential of developing non-communicable diseases like diabetes or being overweight, this uh, increases with age and also the body's ability to correct these dietary mistakes that decreases. Therefore, it's really becoming obvious that managing a person's blood glucose levels is also really key to promote uh, long-term health. And Benio offers various solutions to it. Like Rudy already highlighted, we have a very diverse portfolio of chicory wood fibers, isomalt, palatinose to support our customers in the topic of healthy aging. Another reveal at FIE came from the GNT Group, which produces the Xperi Natural Food Coloring Range. GNT Research developed the power of color to help brands create coloring solutions to connect with their target consumers. It's a very interesting subject, and to discuss it more, we chatted with Matia Hendricks, Market Development Manager at GNT Group. So what's the focus of the company going to be at FIE? Well, really, first, fingers crossed that the show will proceed in these uh, uncertain times. Well, at uh, FIE, we will showcase really a wide range of products, really with a proven track record. We will bring a lot of commercial products with us, which are already successful in the market and really on a global scale, what we can showcase. And during the last years, we always announced the color of the year. And that really turned out to be a quite a successful campaign because many of our customers, but also journalists, reach out already in, in September to kind of figure out what would be the color of next year. This year in 2021, we're focusing on red. And red is really the color of contradictionary, of anger and hate, but also on the other hand of love and passion. And this turned out to be a really, a really successful or really good color of 2021 in a year which is really kind of an uncertain year. And the year before, we focused on the shades of aqua. That was really a color range of blues and greens. By that time, we showcased all kinds of new, innovative blue foods and beverages. But on the other hand, we really focused on green and facing uh, sustainability of our coloring food in our company. I wonder if you could tell me about the power of color research that you've been working on. 
Yeah, so after really an intense internal debate, I would say, we decided to step away of the color of the year, although it was really successful. But we always claim that we are really an innovative company and that we are really the thought leaders of the industry. And therefore, I also think when you're saying that you are really innovative, then you should be brave enough to also step away from really successful things, what you did in the past, and really to try something completely new. And that is why we started The Power of Color. And what you see is during this month so in november december a lot of companies come up with for example the top 10 trends in food and beverages and many trends of course looks the same and therefore we want to do something different and really dive into a topic of color and therefore we teamed up with a group of consumer psychologists and semioticians and Together, we started quite a big research, and this really delivers a unique insight on how color generates meaning across products, but also across brands and across categories. What really enabling manufacturers to create compelling products and what really stands out in their category. But maybe it's good to first explain a little bit on semiotics, because I don't know if everyone knows what it is. Essentially, it is the study of meaning and how that meaning is created and interpreted in different contexts. So it really helps us to understand why people are using colors in different cultures and in different categories. So every minute, every day every second we make decisions and then most of the decisions are we are making unconscious and with this study we want to make clear why consumers make some choices and if we and if the producer know these codes then they can also use that to influence it in their products and because color really plays an important role And for this research, we use the motivational framework, which is also used in the field of neuromarketing. When you look at the motivational framework, that framework consists of four quadrants. It is divided by a horizontal and a vertical X. So that motivational framework has really a deep academic background, but it also helps us to look at consumer behavior. And the motivational framework is more or less like looking at all the tensions people have inside them. So on the horizontal axis, we see the tension between, on one hand, acting as an individual and really be empowered to make your own choices. But also on the other hand, that's how human beings are, that they want to be part of a group. So that is always a constant tension, what you see. And it's not a matter of good and bad or right or wrong. It's just cultural human behavior. And then we see on the vertical X, we see the tension of on the bottom, taking good care of yourself and being in control, making really smart and healthy choices. But also over there, we are always in conflict because we also want to treat ourselves and enjoy ourselves. And and with this motivational framework in mind, we teamed up with several semioticians and really looked into the meaning of color in these categories and in these um, different cultures. And so could you kind of run through some of those connections between colors and moods? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, What I was trying to explain, semiotics, is really the study of signs and symbols, and also color is a symbol. For example, think of a traffic light. A traffic light is more or less universal. So a traffic light always contains green and red, and everyone almost worldwide know what to do when he or she sees the color green or red. But when somebody comes up with the new traffic light, which contains the color blue, for example, then you will see that yeah, nobody knows anymore what to do. So the traffic light is really universal. 
when you start to think of colors, some brands are associated with specific colors, like you've got that red Coca-Cola and whatever. Yeah. I just wonder, mm-hmm. does that form part of consumers' thoughts on color? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So on one hand, the red of Coca-Cola is really an iconic color, but that doesn't mean that Coca-Cola couldn't use any other colors. So what you see is some products really have predefined colors, like a blue coffee would be really difficult to understand or to accept for end consumers. But when you look at the motivational framework, then you also see people which really looking for excitement and new things to explore. And here, for example, it would just open up to use new colors into products like coffee, what always tend to be brown. And what does all of this research mean for your customers, the food Mm -hmm. producers? Yeah, well, I think that semiotics really could help the food producers to understand the meaning of color, because although consumers tend to choose the products unconscious, I don't believe that it's really so unconscious that you would think. People are in front of a supermarket shelf and the color is one of the first things they see and what attracts them. So, of course, people have the knowledge or the impression that they know how it will taste. First, they will see the product. So, therefore, color is even more important than the flavor or how it tastes, I would say. And then, of course, there's the issue of the fact that there's no such thing as just red. There are different shades and there's millions of different colors. How do those shades and even color combinations enter the picture? Yeah, and that is also why we stepped away of the color of the year. So this year we're focusing on red. We focused on the shades of blue, the shades of sunshine, which was more on on the yellow and orange. But... What we also see is that the world is not black and white anymore. And luckily, we focus more and more on diversity and being yourself, really have your own choice, what to choose. And today it can be red, tomorrow it can be blue, and a day later it can be something completely else. So therefore, we also stepped away of one color of the year. And within this motivational framework, what we are using in our scientific study, we really discover different worlds, I would say, related to different color palettes. And some color palettes are more in one color shade, like purple or really the dark shades, but also other worlds are more containing really contradictory colors, like really bright yellows, greens, and blues. How do you factor in things like sustainability, clean label, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing? Well, that's, of course, always a very important topic for us, as we are a 100% natural company only producing coloring food. That is also what is already in our DNA. And in the end, it really needs to be a complete, understandable and acceptable product also for the end consumer, where you have, for example, the packaging and the texture and the taste, but also the marketing message, the claim on on the packaging, the point of sales, the pricing, everything needs to be complementary. And also the way the product is produced is getting more and more important because consumers really want to have products with an understandable ingredients list and not only containing e-numbers, but also that a product is produced by a trustworthy producer. I really think this is a universal need and that sustainability is not only something for European or US companies because For example, last week I was visiting a number of food and beverage companies in India and also over there you see that end consumers have a really strong preference to healthy ingredients, but also the ingredients what they really can understand and that's produced on a sustainable way and also within a company which is more or less doing good for the world. 
I would say. Something that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about different cultures and want to kind of pick up on that because how do cultural differences such as national colours influence things like Mm -hmm. the orange to the Netherlands in Mm -hmm. terms of sport and then the same with black and New Zealand and yellow Mm -hmm. green for Australia? How Mm -hmm. does that kind of fit in? Yeah, that's really important. And that's also what we figured out in our study. So the study of semiotics is really a study also on a local scale. So you cannot say a particular color stands for something on a global scale. So therefore, you really need to dive into the category, but also dive into the country or even the city. In football teams, but also in other sports teams, also the team members, but also the people around really acting as a tribe. So they want to belong to something and wearing those colors or painting them face orange when the national team in the Netherlands is playing. They want to really belong to a group and express where they belong to. So therefore, what you see when the Dutch team is uh, is playing in the Netherlands that everyone is dressed up in orange, houses are decorated in orange, and that color really stands for something like showing the country together as one nation. As far as your company is concerned, how can GNT leverage that information to connect customers and consumers more effectively? Well, that is slightly different what we did in the past. So, In the past, we always announced the color of the year with a press release, with some trend reports, with uh, some pages on our website, for instance. But this research is slightly different. So as you can imagine, it's an ongoing research because we keep on studying different categories in different cultures. And it won't also not provide one solution for all. It really depends on where you are, what kind of category, what kind of products. So therefore, we decided to really team up with our customers. And now we're in a stage where we starting to work together with our customers and we are organizing dedicated workshops and Within those workshops, we dive into the uh, semiotics and into the motivational framework and really discover where their product stands for, what kind of colors they now using, but also how they can extend it. Besides that, of course, we will publish some results of our study in the upcoming months, which are maybe a bit more universal, But in this case, we thought it was better to do it more one-to-one and really help our customers. While it may have happened a few weeks ago, COP26 is still a hugely important event and hopefully one that isn't forgotten, or at least the commitments that were made. But was it a success overall or was it enough? To get a perspective on COP26, we had a conversation with FAIR Policy Director Dr. Helena Wright. Were you actually up in Glasgow for the COP26? Yes, I was. Yeah, we had a sort of small delegation from FAIR, so that was good. Quite a few of us sort of went up and did a couple of events around the margins, a lot smaller than previous UN summits that I've been to. Yeah, it was really exciting to be there. I wonder if you could kind of first give me your impressions of COP26. 26 now that it's over whether that's optimism pessimism somewhere in between yeah I think it's a sort of a mix really I largely quite optimistic really in terms of what they achieved at the summit they were pushing to sort of maintain the 1.5 goal within sites and that is positive to see that that is still kind of looking a lot better than it was previously and a lot of ambition was raised and I think particularly the outside kind of um, agreements that took place such as the agreement on methane. I mean, it was great to see so many countries, more than 100 countries supporting that um, methane pledge of a 30% reduction by 2030. So I think that's a really positive step. On the other hand, it's not clear whether the methane pledge that was taken does align with 1.5 degrees, because the UN has actually stated that a reduction of 45% was needed within the next decade to align with the 1.5 goals. 
But yeah, generally, it's good to see those sort of statements being made. And also with um, nature coming to the fore a lot more than in previous summits as well. Um, we saw a lot of agreements on nature and land use. There was a big commitment by supermarkets as well on sort of nature and sustainable diets. And there was also a policy action agenda being agreed around agricultural subsidies as well. So related to sort of repurposing support for agriculture and making sure it better takes into account climate and nature. So all of those things are really positive, I think. Do you think it's achieved anything with respect to some of those major issues? Yeah, I think it's probably a first stepping stone. I, and we did see, obviously, there wasn't enough attention paid to agriculture, I think, at COP, you know, despite obviously agriculture being the sort of largest global contributor to deforestation, etc. So it still wasn't really up there on the top part of the agenda, but it was coming in now. And I think that kind of lays the groundwork for future summits as well, where I think agriculture is going to have a much bigger role. Another good thing that was announced actually was the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda on Innovation. And it was really interesting to see agriculture was actually sort of announced as part of that as one of five breakthroughs. So that was really positive too. Some of this, I think, revolves around publicity in so far as we had maybe about 18 months ago, we had that war on plastic that was very public and it was in all of the news and companies jumped on board that the same is kind of happening now with methane emissions, carbon footprints, lots of press releases, lots of announcements. Do you think that all of that is meaningful? It is good to sort of have those issues more in the public eye. And I think it's particularly in the UK uh, media that really has been a lot more awareness being generated of the climate crisis around the COP. But yeah, as you say, the, having commitment is really not the same as actually having a policy with implementation. And actually, I was having this conversation with someone the other day and they pointed out when it comes to plastic, there's been some really hard hitting sort of media things that have raised people's awareness such as you know images of the turtles with <laughs> plastic straws and the kind of yeah I think people are a lot more aware in some ways even of the plastic crisis than they are of the overall sort of biodiversity and agricultural food system crisis that they are at the moment so I think there's still more more way to go and also when we're talking about the methane pledge right now with that is just really a high level statement at the moment of methane reduction targets. We have seen the UN sort of pointing out very clearly that we need to tackle methane to avoid the tipping points in the climate system. And it is one of the most important actions that they have suggested to avoid severe tipping points. Um, but actually implementing those pledges, we're probably some far away from right now in terms of actually governments implementing proper plans to, to tackle methane emissions. And then that kind of leads into monitoring because companies can say what they want and have all kinds of announcements as to what they're doing on reduction. But how do you monitor that and hold them to account? Because if we're having the same discussion 10, 15 years down the road, then it'll be a bit late. Yes, exactly. And I think, to be honest, another issue is that we don't even have all of the information that we would need in terms of disclosure and tracking of the methane emissions. So actually FAIR's researchers find that, you know, scope three emissions disclosure is still a really big problem. So food retailers and producers, they need to really track scope three, the whole sort of value chain of their emissions. You know, Tesco actually revealed that 60% of all of its emissions um, and its entire carbon footprint are coming from animal agriculture, for example. I mean, we are seeing improvements now. So in FAIR's engagement with some of the largest food retailers, we found that almost half of those companies are now tracking and disclosing their emissions. And that's increased up from about 20% in 2019. So we are seeing those improvements, but still there's quite a large number of companies who aren't fully tracking their emissions or reporting on them. What do you think that all of the implications are for all of this on the food industry in general? Yeah, I think it, it means that, you know, the food companies are going to have to step up on emissions disclosure and tracking and also setting targets as well over the next couple of years. And the food sector in general is quite behind the overall energy sector. According to FAIR's research, there's been a lot less disclosure so far. So we're probably behind in terms of quite a few years behind 
what measures are starting to be taken and implemented. But really, investors from an investor perspective are sort of looking down towards their whole portfolio in terms of what companies they're investing in. And a lot of our investor members also have been making commitments on climate change and net zero. So, you know, in order to actually retain those sort of um, investors and shareholders, they're going to have to really um, step up on their emissions and on climate change, basically. And of course, a lot of this will come at a cost. Uh, Who do you think is going to have to bear the cost of the changes that are made? Is it going to be companies? Will it sadly be the end consumer or will there be government incentives to offset some of that? Or do you think maybe a combination of all of those? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be have a combination of, of all three, really. In terms of companies, we're already seeing quite a lot of changes being made and sort of transitions and investments being made towards low carbon. In terms of government support, another quick thing to mention is how government is changing and reforming its agricultural subsidies will be important. Because at the moment, you know, reports in the past have shown that quite a large amount of the agricultural subsidies are directed to the most high carbon parts of the food system, including sort of intensive livestock production as well. And a lot of investors are also calling on better reform of those subsidies in line with climate goals and and nature goals. So that should basically eventually help to shift those costs. And also it should help in a way also the end consumers as well, because potentially the healthier types of foods you know fruits and vegetables and so on there may be more incentives for consumption of those products there are a lot of powerful lobbies interest groups companies how do you tackle that kind of influence at government level yeah that's an important issue actually and i think you know that has been similar in terms of other sectors as well particularly when it comes to tricky areas like Um, subsidies there is a sort of (laughs) it is quite difficult to transform the system when there's a lot of embedded you know interest essentially but yeah I think one way that can be quite useful is is looking at the sort of just transition topic and we are starting some research on that and that's how farmers and producers can be supported to transition their production to a more sustainable and low carbon method that's already been well researched in the energy sector and sort of different funds and things have been developed to support producers with transitioning their production so I think that could help because it would help with maintaining jobs and livelihoods and ensuring there's a more smoother transition for all different stakeholders including farmers. How is all of that going to be monitored because having done several articles and interviews with FAIR in the past. Some companies clearly are very open and some aren't, and that also applies at the national level. Some countries are extremely open and others aren't. How how is it all going to be monitored? Yes, absolutely. That's that's really important. What we found, for example, is it varies over different geographies and in Asia particularly there's still not not enough disclosure in terms of all of the sort of ESG risks that we cover in our Colifair Protein Producer Index. So we're, we're actually monitoring the 60 largest um, protein producer companies globally. So they're quite distributed around the world and supply chains also reach around the world. But I think there's a need for really sort of better disclosure globally. Otherwise, you know, it's impossible to track with the global supply chains that we have now. One promising thing that we've seen movement on is the climate risk disclosure requirements. So we saw the G7 countries as a whole supporting better disclosure on climate risk. So I think we'll see some of those requirements coming in for better disclosure over the years ahead, which will probably be global as well. Now that COP26 is over, how do we keep that momentum going so that it's not just a big fanfare and a big announcement and then it just slides into obscurity in 12 months time? Yeah, so one of the things we're actually calling for is for the next year's COP, COP27 to have a bigger focus on food and agriculture. And I think it will be necessary to follow up on a lot of the commitments that have been made in terms of methane. And we also released an investor statement at COP as well, supported by investors with 12 trillion, basically calling for better disclosure of targets in the agriculture sector as well. 
so it will be important to see the country commitments called the NDCs being updated to include agriculture. And they'll also need to basically include those methane and deforestation commitments into their national plans as well, so that it's not just an announcement, <laughs> but there needs to be a proper follow up in terms of planning and implementation. What do you see as your role moving forward? Yeah, so I think moving forwards, um, FAIR is going to sort of continue to mobilise investors to act on these climate risks within the food system and also engage with the companies to support and encourage a transition. Yeah, and I think that includes really a wide range of areas that we focus on, such as um, innovation, alternative protein diversification, and also improving sort of policies and actually some of the areas that haven't been focused on enough at the moment, such as antibiotic overuse, and now with methane as well. So I think we're going to continue our work basically with a lot of these, but also particularly on the policy front, on areas such as agricultural subsidies and on the the just transition. So investors have quite an important role where they can actually work together with governments probably to support a sustainable transition that will support all stakeholders. So looking forward to working on that in the years ahead. And that's it for another podcast. Because I was anticipating being on the road, this portion of the podcast was produced a little earlier than usual, so there's no roundup of the dairy markets with Charlie Highland at Stone X. Hopefully, we'll be able to include that weekly update next week. I do have next week's podcast interviews done, at least, and the plan, as of right now, is we will have interviews with Cardbox Packaging, all the food's ingredients, and the winner of the Real California Milk Accelerator program. But like everything else, it is subject to change without notice. I went walking at the weekend and there was snow in the higher hills and some sporting events were also affected by snow, so it is definitely the season to be chilly, at least in the northern part of the northern hemisphere. Weather permitting, I'm hoping to be out again in the hills this weekend, looking a little like a marshmallow wrapped for all kinds of potential weather. Hopefully I'll be able to avoid stores as the parking lots fill up with Christmas shoppers full of joy and profanities. And so on that note, I hope that you got to eat the chocolate behind window number one. If you're in the US, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And wherever in the world you're listening from, that you'll join us again next time. So until then, take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>